Well, good morning. One more time. How y'all doing this morning? Awesome, 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 awesome. Well, I'm glad. Uh, We are working through the scriptures. We have been looking at the kingdom of God. We've worked through the Old Testament, talking about the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of God, the looking forward to the kingdom of God, the Messiah who's going to reign as king of the kingdom of God. And when we got to the New Testament and we began to look at Jesus and the first thing he began to preach, um, John the Baptist and Jesus was repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. And then we got right into Jesus' teaching and Jesus' teaching about those who will be in the kingdom and those who will not be in the kingdom. So we kind of hit the brakes. We're going to move through this section really slowly. Most people know it as the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but he, Jesus is, is given a lot of teaching. He's packed it all in. A lot of teaching about the kingdom, members of the kingdom, who's going to enter the kingdom, what it's like to be in the kingdom. And so we're going to move slowly through that, through that section. Um, so I'm glad you're here with me this morning. Before we jump in, let's open up in prayer. Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you for your love for us. Father, as we study your word each and every week, Father, I pray that you will help us to understand it clearly, to accept it, to not push back against it, and to embrace it, and Father, to live by it. Father, we want to be great members of your kingdom. Father, I pray that during this hour that you would help us to clearly understand your word in a way that we can live it out. We love you, Father. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we, we pray. Amen. Amen. Getting another sip of water because I got a feeling I'm going to be going fast. Well, I want to start off. You know, I told you a while back how much I admire um, the late Robbie Zacharias. Uh, and, uh, you know, I quote him often, and I told you I was going to start telling you more of his stories. Um, I can't remember the last one I told, but I have told one recently. Uh, but I want to share another one with you this morning. You may have heard it. I hope you haven't. Um, there's always people who haven't. Um, but he tells a story of, uh, everybody familiar with Sherlock Holmes? With Holmes and Watson. So Holmes and Watson decided they were going to go on a camping trip. And while they were on the camping trip, uh, they had a bunch of liquid refreshment. And they went to sleep and they slept hard. Let's just put it that way. Uh, so they fell asleep in their tent. They were sleeping real hard. And in the middle of the night, some, or sometime in the middle of the night, Holmes woke up. He nudged Watson. He said, Watson, look up. What do you see? Watson said, I see stars and stars and stars, millions and millions of stars. Holmes said, well, what does that tell you, Watson? Because, you know, Holmes is always testing Watson. He said, what does that tell you, Watson? Watson pondered the question, and he said, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Orologically, it tells me that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, <laughs> I'm, no, I'm no Watson, I can tell you that. Meteorologically, <laughs> I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Why, Holmes? What does it tell you? 
Holmes said, Watson, you idiot. Someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The only reason I told that story is because he called him an idiot. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in our passage today. (laughs) Jesus talked about the importance of calling people names and how we shouldn't call people these types of names. Let's jump right in. Uh Uh-oh, it's not working. You got it? Matthew 5, 19. Oh, let me jump back real quick. Open up. Matthew 5, 19. Uh, This whole section that we're going through, I want to keep coming back to this, this verse. Jesus opened up this whole section of teachings by saying, Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we want to be great kingdom citizens, do we not? I hope so. No, not allowed to. We want to be great kingdom citizens. And so as great kingdom citizens, we want to take all these teachings and we want to apply them and we want to live by them. So we're jumping in, Matthew five twenty-one to 22. Jesus said, You have heard it said that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Now, Jesus is addressing the people of his time. He starts off by saying, you have heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. What kind of judgment is he talking about? Well, there's two, right? There's judgment by the court, which means you're going to get the death penalty in his day if you murdered, right? But what he's literally talking about is judgment by God himself. This judgment would be that you would spend eternity in hell. This is, this is the judgment he's talking about. That if you murdered, that whoever murders is subject to going to hell. And so in the people's mind that Jesus was talking to, that's kind of how they thought about it. But they kind of thought about it in that sense of, well, if I haven't murdered, then chances are I'm not going to go to hell, right? I mean, that's kind of the mindset. I haven't killed anyone, therefore I'm not subject to judgment. Because we all think that we're pretty good people. I mean, naturally, we all think we're good people. We all think that we're good enough that we deserve to go to heaven. And so Jesus is kind of honing down on this, and he's kind of teaching them this idea that you don't have to actually murder someone to face that type of judgment. He goes on to say, I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So Jesus is saying, you don't just have to murder someone to be, to be in danger of going to hell. You just have to be angry with someone to be in danger of going to hell. That's how strict the law of God is. God demands that we're perfect. And if we hate someone, if we hate, then that hate is also subject to judgment. And so this word insult, now now Christian standard translates whoever insults his brother. Um, I can't really say the, the Greek, but it's, 
the Greek is calls raka. Raka is the Greek word. And raka, as some of your translations may translate, that is the word often translated as idiot. Um, it means empty head. We might say blockhead. Okay? So what Jesus is saying is if you call someone a blockhead, empty-headed, an idiot, someone who's not intelligent, if you call someone this, then you are in danger of going to hell. You are in danger of the same subject to judgment as someone who murders. And then he goes on to say, whoever says you fool, this word is more. Now, we were always taught never call anyone a fool, right? I know I was. And I think a lot of it has to come from this verse is because anyone who says call someone a fool, you will be subject to hellfire. This is not different than what he just said, the subject to judgment. This is the same thing. And that's what I want to show you. Sometimes we'll read this and we'll think calling someone a blockhead is not as bad as calling someone a fool. We'll say calling someone a fool is worse than calling someone a blockhead. Because say they are subject to judgment, but whoever calls someone a fool is subject to hellfire. And we're like, oh, that's worse. I just want to help you understand that the subject to judgment is the subject to hellfire. It's the same thing. Jesus is building on a concept. He's not, he's not contrasting a concept. And so the question is, uh, if this is true, it, it gives us a little bit of a predicament. And if you read your Bible all the time, you may instantly know what that predicament is. Jesus calls Pharisees fools. He uses the same word, more. And he doesn't do it in a nice way. He does it in a very, very upset way. And we'll look at it in just a second. But if that's true, if Jesus does this and he's telling us that we're in danger of going to hell if we do this, then that immediately that tells us there's something there that we have to figure out. What's the difference? And the difference is not the words you use. The difference is whether you're angry. And this is what, I don't know if y'all are familiar with this term, righteous anger. You know, some people use that term, righteous anger. There's a difference between, and it's true, there's a difference between righteous anger, being angry about injustice, being angry about uh, sin, being angry about something that is victimizing other people, and hating someone. There is a difference. And the scripture tells us there's a difference, and we're going to look at that difference. So real quick, let's jump, let's see what Jesus did. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verses 13 through 17, now these, I'll go ahead and give you a heads up, these are the harshest criticisms of Jesus that you will read in the New Testament. These are the harshest language we hear him use. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in, and you don't allow those entering to go in. There's the condemnation right there. He says, you don't, are not going to heaven and you're preventing others from going to heaven. That's the, that is the condemnation Jesus is giving them. He goes on to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. This is not soft language from Jesus. This is angry Jesus right here. But we know that Jesus did not sin. This is what we call righteous anger. He goes on, woe to you blind guides who say whatever takes an, whoever takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gold of the temple is bound by his oath. 
And then here's where that word more comes in. Blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? So here's Jesus very angry, very angry. When he overturned the tables, y'all remember this? When he overturned the tables in the temple because everybody was selling in the temple, it said he sat down, you may not remember this, he sat down before he overturned the, t- the, temple, the tables and ran all the people who were doing business inside the temple, which shouldn't have been done. Before he did that, it says he sat down and braided a whip. Do you know how long it takes to sit and braid a whip? I mean, maybe, the, I'm sure he was fast. He was probably great at everything he did. I'm sure he was fast at it. But he was probably intentionally slow at it on purpose. Where he's sitting there and he's, you know, I picture it, and this is not from the Bible, but this is just how I picture it. I picture Jesus sitting there with his leather, braiding his whip, speaking out loud, giving people time to pack up their tables and get out. That's the way I picture it. I think that's why they included that part in the scriptures to let them know, hey, there's a long period of time built up here before he actually did this. He's braiding his whip, and he's letting them know what they are doing wrong. And then when he gets done, he runs the animals off, he overturns the tables, and he runs them off. Jesus was angry about injustice. Jesus was angry about people leading people and preventing people from going to heaven forever. That is something we should be angry about. That is something we should get angry about. See, we're taught... In our, in our society, in this day and age, we are taught it's never okay to be angry, ever. We're taught as Christians we are always to be meek and gentle. But then there's a problem because when we read Jesus, we read many times him not being meek and gentle. We read that. And then we feel like, well, I don't understand. I don't, I don't get it. What's the difference? And the difference is, Jesus was meek and gentle to some, and he was not to others. He became angry about injustice. He became angry about victimization. He became angry when people were committing violent offenses against others. He was angry about when people were, were taking advantage of the poor, when they were uh, abusing other people. He was angry about the things where people were treated badly. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. Let's, let's keep going. So here, what does God say about being angry? Because we need to know this. What does God say about being angry? This is what God says. If we look at Proverbs 6, 16 and 19, it starts off, it says, the Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. The Lord hates certain things. Is he wrong for hating certain things? Can that be wrong if God does it? Can it be wrong? It can't be wrong. And if God doesn't, does it, shouldn't we emulate him? Shouldn't we try to be like him? We should. It says he hates six things, seven are detestable to him. And then it says what those things are. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. These are the things God hates sin, injustice, murder, lying, 
Treating people like they're not made in the image that he made them in. Treating them as if they're not his children. This is what makes God angry. This is what God hates. And we should too. We should hate injustice. We should hate evil. We should hate lying. We shouldn't lie to get out of trouble. We should hate lying. Proverbs, uh, he hates evil. Isaiah 61, 8. For I, the Lord, love justice, he says. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and injustice. I will faithfully reward my people and make a permanent covenant with them. And we're told to hate evil. We are told that we are supposed to hate evil. Psalm 97, 10. You who love the Lord hate evil. He protects the lives of his faithful ones. He rescues them from the power of the wicked. And unless you think, well, that's just all Old Testament stuff, and the Old Testament God doesn't seem to match the New Testament God when I read that, if that's the kind of the inclination you're coming from, let me just throw in uh, Revelation 2.6, New Testament. He says, you, he's talking to the seven churches now. He's writing to the seven churches, and, he said, and he's pretty much condemning the seven churches. They really, most every one of them except for one really gets a bad rap. But in the midst of that, he said, Yet you do have this going for you. I mean, you do have this good one, one good quality going for you. He says, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so he says, that I'm, I'm glad. That's what God says to the church. The people, the Nicolaitans are, are, and I don't know what their practices are. I don't know. But I guarantee you it's some form of injustice. It's some form of evil. It's some form of sin. Whatever it is. He didn't say, you hate the Nicolaitans. That's that's where we're going next. That's what I want you to see. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's what God's saying. You should hate evil. You should hate sin. You should hate injustice. You should not hate people. You should hate what some people are doing. You should not hate people. He goes on. How do we understand the difference? Second Peter 3, 9. He says, The Lord does not delay His promise, as some understand delay, but is, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Did God hate the practices of the Nicolaitans? Yes. Did God, was God patient with the Nicolaitans, wanting them not to perish, but to come to repentance? Yes. And that's where our heart needs to be as well. How does that play out in real life? Most of the time in real life, most of the time, in most of your conversations, in most of your interactions with people, they should play out in a very calm manner. They should. Most of your private conversations, one-on-one conversations, ideas, topics, you disagree with somebody about a certain idea, most of these things should play out in a calm, peaceful, loving manner. They should. But there are some times in life where you are face-to-face with some types of injustice where as Christians who are made in the image of God, you should boldly speak up against, even if you're angry, and be angry about certain injustices and speak out against them. And the one that you'll hear from me all the time, the biggest injustice I believe that, uh, that happens in this country on a daily basis, is abortion. The number one. 
where you are killing innocent children and every reason is always not good enough. No matter what the reason is, economic reasons, whatever it may be. That is called injustice. Now, when you're having a conversation with one-on-one with somebody about these, which I have, I've sat down with people, I've had these conversations because I care deeply about the topic, and I'm always calm and reserved and try my best to just peacefully and lovingly share the truth that I know. But does that mean that I can't be upset about it? Of course not. I am upset about it. I should get upset about it. And sometimes there should be loud protests in the streets of Washington, D.C. to protest against injustices like this and abortion. There should be. And you should be loud. And you should be angry about it. Doesn't mean we don't love the people who have done it. But we can't stay silent on the topic. Can't do it. So situations... The situations you find yourself in do, in fact, affect how you should react to situations. Jesus, many times, had conversations one-on-one with sinners, whatever the sin may be, sinners, one-on-one conversation, and you see mercy and forgiveness and compassion. But you also read where he's in the the city, in the streets, large groups of people around, and you have people, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, who are leading people away from God for eternity, and it calls for him to be loud and to be angry and to get the point across to everybody because he's angry about injustice. So that's okay too. It's okay for these things. As long as your heart is, you don't want those people to perish You do want them to come to repentance. And can I just say this one thing? I wasn't planning on saying this, but I'll just throw it in. This is more of a, this is not a rule. This is more of a one-on-one. You know people, you know individual people. Every single person you know has a completely different personality. There are some people I know that if you want to talk to them and you want to help change their mind, you need to be sweet, you need to be gentle because they're tender-hearted. They are tender-hearted people. And they get their feelings hurt easily. You also have friends that are stubborn as a mule. You do. And they talk to you as blunt as can be. And sometimes you just got to be blunt and straightforward to talk back with them. I'm not saying be ugly. I'm not saying to, to, to use any type of inappropriate language. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is some people just appreciate you being straight and just tell me straight. Don't beat around the bush. Just tell it to me straight. They can take it. Others can't. You got you to gotta work in. You got to go slow. You got to help. You got to be gentle. That's all I'm saying. You know those people. And those, you, know, you have to make those decisions one-on-one. I've, I know those people. I am those people. All right. <laughs> so where should our hatred be focused? If, it's, if we're supposed to hate sin, where should our hatred be focused? It says, Ephesians six twelve. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Our hatred should be focused on evil, not on people. We should hate evil. We should not hate people. If you keep that rule at heart, close to heart, then you'll be okay. 
I'm, I'm confident you will be able to navigate when is it okay to show righteous anger, when is it not okay, how do I handle myself, how do I compose myself. I think you'll probably be okay. If you keep in your heart that I'm not, I don't hate you because I want to save you because you're still alive and you still have a chance to be saved, but I hate the evil that you're committing, you will probably handle yourself correctly. So how should we act towards those who are committing these evils? Jude 22 and 23 says, Have mercy on those who waver. I mean, this is kind of in the context, this is really in the context of believers who are, who are shaken, believers who are, are wavering and, and committing sin. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. So these are people who are lost. Save them by snatching them from the fires of hell. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And so the reason I picked this verse is because I think it says very clearly how we are to treat people who are in the act of living in sin. And that's the context here. Whether they're saved or whether they're lost, because it addresses both groups, People who are in the context of living in sin, how are we to treat them? We're to have mercy on them. We're to show them mercy because God has shown us mercy. We are to try to save them by snatching them from the fire. We are to have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Fear that we won't get sucked into that sin as well. That's the fear we're talking about. Fear that we must hate the sin and not rationalize the sin, not say the sin's okay, not make excuses for the sin. Otherwise, we will eventually agree with the sin, and who knows, we may even fall into the sin. So that phrase that y'all hear all the time, which I think is overused and not appropriately used a lot, but you hear it all the time, hate the sin, not the sinner. That's true. And this is, this is, in essence, that's what this verse is saying. Hate the sin, be merciful to the sinner. Hate the sin, don't hate the sinner. That's true in this context, as long as you don't apply it like I hear it so often applied as, don't even worry about the sin. Act like the sin's not a big deal. Ignore the sin. Hate the sin, don't hate the sinner. Hate the sin, love the sinner. In other words, ignore the sin, just love them. And don't, don't tell them it's wrong. Don't tell them, don't tell them the truth. Don't confront them with it. That's not the right context. This context is snatch them from the fire. That's what this context is. You must share with them that it is sinful. You must share with them that they are in danger of going to hell because they're not saved. They have not repented of sin. You must snatch them from the fire. You can't do that by ignoring the topic. You can't do that by ignoring it. So why was Jesus so harsh with the Pharisees? If we went through this and we understand what he's teaching, why was he so harsh? In that first verse that I read you, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. So imagine yourself in the situation of Jesus and the Pharisees 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem. Imagine you're there. 
Here is a group of people that have convinced everyone that they are the saved. They are the church. It wasn't called church back then, but we call church today, so that's what I'm going to say. They were the leaders of the church. They were the saved ones. And so they had convinced everyone else they were the saved ones and that you must become like them if you want to be saved. Everybody believed that. Jesus knew the truth because Jesus could see the heart. Jesus knew they were not saved. Jesus knew that they were making people like them who were not saved and convincing people to, make, to do their religious, view, religious relationship with God as an outward sign and never have to actually be an inward change. And so they were leading other people to hell. So what should Jesus have done? He should have done exactly what he did. He should have told the crowds, told the city, told everybody that could hear that these people are not saved. And if you become like them, it hasn't gotten you any closer to being saved. And if you want to be saved, don't follow them, follow me. That's exactly what he should have done. He should have been loud and boisterous. I'm not going to get into politics, but I'll give it as, a, as an illustration because you can all do it. You, know, you can all imagine it. If, please don't say anything, this is not political, this is not political. I'm just using it as a good illustration because it's easy for you to grasp, okay? If we only had one party, <laughs> if we only had one party, if we didn't have multiple parties, if we just had one party government party, and the government was really, really doing the citizens wrong. I mean, just really sweep, taking advantage of us and taking all our money and treating us, not giving us hardly any food, not making it where we could earn a living for ourselves. If the government was really treating us bad, but everybody thought the government was the greatest in the world. I'll say this, that's, that's a lot like North Korea where their propaganda, Kim Jong-un, his propaganda, and what they show to their citizens and how the citizens have to treat the, him and the, and the Kim family, they're constantly showing propaganda to them, telling them that you owe everything you have, your food, your protection, your livelihood, it's all to the emperor, to Kim, and that, and, and that you should worship him and thank him for all the good things he's done for you. But in reality, because they can't see outside their walls, they're not allowed to have internet, they're not allowed to, to know what's going on, be out on the borders of their country. They're living in poverty, they're being oppressed, they don't know it, and they think Kim's the greatest. So let's just use that example. It's a better one than I was trying to come up with. So that example. Should you, if you're in the country, you're going to lose your life, but if you're in the country, should you try to make it aware to the people that they're lying to you, they're doing you wrong, they're treating you badly, and it's not true? If your eternity was at stake? Yes. Their eternity is at stake. That's why there are Christian martyrs who go to North Korea. There are Christian martyrs from within North Korea who are trying to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people so that people can be saved forever. But if any family is caught with a Bible, if a man is caught, and y'all remember this from the VOM video I showed, if a man is caught with a Bible, they take the whole family and execute them. 
kind of makes it hard to share the gospel there. Because as a husband who loves his wife and children, you know that bringing this to your home could mean they're taken to a concentration camp and killed. And that makes it a very difficult decision for you to do, to even listen. And you're supposed to report that stuff to the government. And if the government finds out that you knew about it and you didn't report it, you're dead too. Jesus did exactly what he was supposed to do. Here's a group of people who are being led astray, who are being kept from entering into the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus called them out in public and made everybody aware of it. That's exactly what he was supposed to do. And he was angry about it because people were going to hell forever when they could be going to heaven forever. And he was angry about it. We can't get complacent about it either. We can't. Okay. Matthew 5, 21, 22. He says, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. You are not just guilty after the act of murder. You are guilty at the act of hatred. If you hate someone... If you hate someone, you are guilty of murder, according to Jesus. In other words, you're going to get the same punishment. Your, your, your eternity is hell, just like if you murdered somebody. Same, same deal. You can't go through life and be a decent person and expect to end up in heaven because you were a decent person in our own eyes. You can't. God knows the heart, and the heart is just as important. So he gives some examples. He says, here, since this is true, and if you just call someone, if you call someone names because you hate them, the problem is you hate them. That's the problem. And if you hate them, then you are subject to the judgment of hell as well because you have hatred in your heart. So he said, this is what you should do. 23 and 24, it says, If you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. I know the mood is kind of harsh, so I'll just lighten it up a little bit. Pastors love this verse. Because what it says is, if you come and put your offering, you got your offering, and you come to give your offering to the church and you realize that that your brother, you've done something wrong to your brother or sister. The, the verse said, leave your offering here <laughs> and, and then go back and get, and get right with God. And then you can come back. But leave your offering here. Uh, I've heard pastors say that. I'm just telling you, that's not the heart of this message. Okay? That is not what Jesus is talking about. This is what Jesus is saying. If you come here to worship God and you're in here and you're you're trying to worship. Modern day analogy. If you realize you've done your brother or sister wrong, you've done somebody wrong, and you know they're upset with you because you did them wrong, you're at fault. God's saying, look, go be reconciled with them and then come back and worship. That's how serious it is to God. That's, the, that's Jesus' point. That's how serious it is to God. That's how serious he takes this. 
that he, of course he wants you to come worship him, but he's so serious about this that he's saying, look, stop worshiping me. Go get right. Go apologize. Go ask for forgiveness from your brother or sister. Then come back and worship me from a clean heart. That's how serious God takes this. And that's for your brother or sister. That's for somebody, in other words, a Christian, somebody you're close to, somebody that agrees with you, a friend. Then he gives another example. He says, uh, says, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary. This is not your friend. Your adversary is your enemy. Okay? So he gives two examples. One with someone you're close to, one with someone who hates you. So Jesus is saying it doesn't just apply with your friends because that's no better than the Gentiles. He said, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown into prison. In other words, even if your enemy who you don't like, who you think is in the wrong because they're your enemy for whatever reason, even if your enemy has something against you, the judge is still going to rule in favor of your enemy if you have done them wrong. That's the point. If you've done your enemy wrong, it's not okay. That's something that the Jewish people didn't understand in Jesus' day because he said, you've, and we'll get to this later, you've heard love your neighbor, hate your enemies. That's what they're taught. That's what they were taught. And Jesus said, no, 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 look. If your neighbor has something against you, you need to go get right with them. If your enemy has something against them, you need to go get right with them or at least apologize and admit that you were wrong, whether they ever accept your apology or not, doesn't matter because the judge will rule in favor of your enemy if you've done wrong. The judge is impartial. God is impartial. We can't do wrong regardless of who we do wrong to. God is impartial. And then this last one, just so you don't get led astray, it says, and you will be thrown into prison for truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. There are large groups of Christians who believe that once you die and go to hell, that you will uh, spend a certain amount of time being punished for all your sins that, have, that you've committed that have not been atoned for. And that's, that's the real problem we have with that idea. Um, that have not been forgiven yet, you must be punished for them for a certain period of time, and then you can be come to heaven after you've been punished for those sins. That's just not what Jesus is teaching here. It's absolutely, I know he said, you're going to go, and it, he is talking about in the context of being thrown into hell. He is talking in that context. He says, you're going to be thrown into hell until you can pay the very last penny. The point is, you owe an immense debt because of your sins. You're going to be thrown into hell until you can pay it off you can't pay it off. You can't pay it off. So that this is not to give you hope. This is to, to not give you hope. Jesus giving this example was to let you know there's no hope. You're not going to pay off your debt by being punished in hell for a certain amount of time. It's not going to happen. So what do you must do? You must ask forgiveness. You must ask forgiveness from those you've wronged. Why? Why? It takes us back to this verse that we started on. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Because we want the kingdom of heaven, that we want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want the kingdom of heaven on earth to be just as great as the kingdom of heaven in heaven. Do we not? 
We want to be great kingdom members, do we not? We want to be great kingdom members. And to be great kingdom members, Jesus is teaching us how to be great kingdom members. He says it's not just enough. If you want to be a great kingdom member of the kingdom of God, if you want the kingdom of God to be great on earth, you cannot, and here I'm summing it up, so this is it. This is the whole thing in a nutshell. You cannot just go through life without killing someone. To be a, member, a great member of the kingdom of heaven and for the kingdom of heaven to be great on earth, you must not hate people. And you can't do wrong to people. And if you do wrong to someone, you need to go and ask them to forgive you whether they're going to forgive you or not. You must be a great member of the kingdom of God. You must show the kingdom of God to people. You must build up the kingdom of God on earth. Don't hate people. Do hate sin. Love people. Hate sin. Share with them. And don't be afraid to share the truth with them. And you will be, you will start down your road of being a great member of the kingdom of God. And if we're all great members of this kingdom, then this kingdom will be great on earth as it is in heaven. But if we refuse to be great members, if we refuse to do what God's called us to do, this kingdom on earth will not be great as it is in heaven. It won't be. Because he's given us a choice. And one of the scariest things, I say this, some, I know I've probably said this a lot, that one of the scariest things, I've, that's what I mean. I've probably said that a lot. And then I say a bunch of different things. So then you think, well, really, do you mean that? I do. I mean it. One of the scariest things Jesus has said in the New Testament is he's, he's talking about when he comes back, the second coming. When he comes back, he said, will I find faith on earth? That's scary. When he comes back, he said, will I even find faith? Will there be a people of faith? Will there be a great kingdom when I come back? That's a scary thought. He didn't say there wouldn't be. It's a scary thought, and it's scary for a reason. We must work hard, because if we don't work hard at being great kingdom members, there will not be a great kingdom on earth when he comes back. He won't even find faith. He warns us. We must do our best to be the best kingdom of God members we can be. And I'm going to tell you right now, you are blessed to be in this town. Not because I'm the preacher. Promise. I promise. I can say that honestly from the pulpit. But because in this close-knit town, in this church family, we have a great church. We have a great church. Doesn't mean I want to just keep it like this. That's not true. But there's a lot of places you can go all over the world, you, don't, you won't have a great church. And I don't mean that by saying a bunch of churches are bad. I'm just saying go to North Korea. You're not going to have a great church family. Go to places where Christianity has been stomped out. You're not going to have a great church family. And go to the most blessed country on this earth, the United States, and there are many places in this country, you're not going to have a great church family. 
And I'm blessed, and you are blessed, to have a great church family. And all I'm saying is, let's just take everything that Jesus said, and let's take it as cold, hard truth. Let's take it serious, and let's try to be the best kingdom members we can be. And if he said that I can't hate anybody, that it's not enough not to kill anybody, that I can't hate anybody, then I'm going to do my best to not hate anybody. And if, I'm, if I feel like I'm hating somebody, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray to God to get, take my hate and give me love. Take my hate and give me love. I've, I've been through it. I've had situations. I, I ain't going to lie. That's the last, please don't think I'm up here and don't have a past. <laughs> we all got a past. But I have hated people from the core of my stomach. I have hated people. And what has helped me is to pray for them. To pray, God, specifically, I can tell you one situation where I prayed many, many, many days in a row. Many. I prayed, God, I want you to make this person a better Christian than I am. That that was, in essence, my prayer. A little different words every day, but in essence, that was my prayer. I want you to grow them closer to you than me. I want them to be a better representative of Christ than me. And by praying that for this person that I hated, I was eventually able to forgive. Did I see them become a better Christian? No, but I was still able to forgive. And that's what we got to learn to do because we've been forgiven we must forgive others. I'm not going to pretend like it's easy. Absolutely not. Not going to pretend. But to see a great kingdom and to be great kingdom members, this is what we got to do. So let's commit together as a church family. We are going to be great kingdom members and we are going to try to not hate and we are going to pray for those who commit sin. But we are going to continue to hate sin and not say that sin is okay and not dismiss it. Because one thing I wanted to say, I was about to close, one more thing. This is important I was going to say. I have heard it said in different terms, in different ways. There are people... Just take it, think of, in your mind, think of somebody who's committing a sin, okay? Think of somebody who's, who's, who's committing a sin. If they are committing a sin against someone else, which almost 99.99% of sins are always hurt someone else, even if they think they're only hurting me, they're not. I'll give you an example because I love to give examples and I love to, to apparently be controversial. But here's the thing. Here's an example. I've heard it said many times about smoking marijuana. Ain't hurting nobody. Who's it hurting? And a lot of people don't have an answer. Let me tell you the truth. Let me tell you the truth. When you smoke marijuana, you had to buy it from somebody. Let's be real. Let's be real now. If you're smoking marijuana, you had to buy it from somebody. They're called drug dealers. They may not want to be called drug dealers because it may be your uncle. But all I'm saying is they're called drug dealers. I'm just telling the truth. A lot of people get marijuana from their family members. I'm just telling the truth. If you get marijuana from a family member, or who, it doesn't matter. They're called drug dealers. They got it from somebody else. They may have got it from another drug dealer who may have got it from another drug dealer, but the point is, who the drug dealers get it from, get it from suppliers. Suppliers take the drugs and they supply it. They move it across the line, okay? 
where they got it from, let's just pick Mexico because Mexico is the number one drug supplier in the world, not just the United States, in the world by far. If it came from Mexico, the people that are smuggling drugs from Mexico to the U.S., guess what they're doing? Well, they're growing it for one, okay? Now let's start looking at who gets hurt along the way. Drug cartels in Mexico are constantly killing each other. I would get into the graphicness of this, but we have little kids in the room, so I'll, I'll spare them that one. But it's brutal. I mean brutal. So let's just take that one. Who am I hurting by smoking marijuana? Well, there's a bunch of folks in Mexico that are getting killed and killing each other because you're, you're smoking marijuana. Let's move on. Not only, they're not just smuggling marijuana and heroin and, and cocaine. They're not just smuggling those things in the U.S. They're also smuggling women. They're smuggling children who are being sold into, into the sex trade. Okay? You're hurting them too by buying, by buying your marijuana. Because your, mar- your money is going to fund that too. And then when it gets to your drug dealers in the U.S., they got gangs, and they're competing for territory, and they're shooting each other in the streets, and you got 20-year-olds shooting each other in the streets, competing because they're in gangs, selling, and they're getting their money from selling drugs. You're hurting them too. So don't tell me I ain't hurting nobody by smoking marijuana. You are funding with your own dollars, and if, if everybody quit smoking marijuana, there would be no funding, and all of this would stop. You are the direct result of all these bad things I just listed. So my point is, getting back to this, when you sin and you see someone sinning, against, sinning, it always hurts somebody else, even when they don't think it does. It always hurts somebody else. And what happens is when they say, you should show them mercy, you shouldn't condemn them, you shouldn't judge them, you should leave them alone because of their sin. Every time you take someone who is committing a crime against someone else and you say, okay, I'm going to show you mercy, I'm going to let that go, you are at the same time not standing up for and not showing mercy to the victims of those crimes. There are always victims. Where are their justice? Who's standing up for them? Who's standing up for these girls that are getting smuggled across the borders because we think that we're not hurting anybody by smoking a joint at the house? We're not standing up for them. So keep that in mind when you go to show mercy or say don't, cut any, don't, don't judge these people for their crimes. Always keep in mind who are the victims because they're getting left out and nobody's standing up for them. Now God did the same thing. You say, well, that's what God does to us. He shows us mercy. He shows us compassion and forgiveness. You can show people mercy and compassion and forgiveness when they sin against you. You can But when you see somebody sinning against somebody else, as a Christian, you should stand up for the victim, not for the criminal. As a Christian, you should. Now, God can forgive anybody who wants because all sin is against him. But he doesn't just forgive them clean-handed. Jesus was the victim. Jesus was the victim. So, I know I should... I shouldn't have just ran off on that rant, but point is, 
You should forgive people when they sin against you. You should find it in your heart to forgive people when they sin against you because God has forgiven you your sins against him. You should. But you should always stand up for somebody who is being victimized because somebody is sinning against them. As a Christian, you should always stand up for those who are being victimized and not for the criminals. Always. That's how we're going to make this kingdom better. By not remaining silent. Who was it? Somebody help me. I know it was the president. Who was it that said the worst sin in the world is when good people do nothing? Text me. I'm going to have to Google it now. But it's true. The worst sin in the world is when good people who know what's right do nothing and say nothing and stay silent. I love y'all. I want to be a great kingdom member. It's not easy. I get that. But we've all got to try. Let's all try together to be the best kingdom members we can be. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and Father, we absolutely 100% need your forgiveness. And Father, don't ever let us take your forgiveness for granted. Father, help us to forgive others because it's hard. When we've been sinned against, it's hard to forgive. So Father, we need you to help us because you were able to do it. You were able to forgive. And so we need you to help us do the same. Father, let's also help us to stand up and speak up for those who are taken advantage of, for those who have become victims. To stand up for what's right, to hate sin, but to not hate the sinner. Father, help us to navigate this world because this world is full of sin and it makes it complicated to know when to do what's right and what's not right and when to do what. Each specific situation gets complicated. But Father, the more that we stand on your word and the more that we do what you've asked us to do, it gets clearer and clearer and clearer. And so Father, we ask you to help us to navigate that road, to help us walk down that road. Because we want to see your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see your kingdom on earth explode. Father, help us to be great members of your kingdom. We love you, Father. We thank you for your love and forgiveness of us. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen.